0: Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Healthy Gut Podcast and today I'm joined by Dr. Megan Taylor who was originally from Seattle, Washington before she moved to Portland, Oregon and is now currently completing a second year residency with Dr. Stambert-Lewis at Eight Hearts Health and Wellness Centre in Portland where she sees children and adults with digestive concerns, autoimmune diseases and allergies but it's fair to say that Dr. Megan Taylor has a particular interest in kids with SIBO. So we talk today about how common it is for kids to have SIBO, whether she sees the same frequency of the condition occurring in kids as in adults, and also what their symptoms are like, whether they're the same as those of us adults that have developed SIBO. I was really interested to know whether the causes are the same as adults because I suspect that I had SIBO from a very young age. She tells me about how she treats her kiddos with SIBO, what her protocols are, and also what she does if kids can't take the breath test, if they're too young to take the breath test, but their symptoms indicate that they may have SIBO. A particular interest for me was around food and I get contacted a lot by parents who have kids with SIBO and they want to know what they should be doing with the diet type for their kiddos. So we we delve into that. And then another really interesting area for me is around the psychological impact of sick kid and I was a sick kid and also around just what kids are like when they've got a condition like SIBO, but also very importantly, what parents are like and the importance of us adults not passing on our fears and anxieties of chronic illness to our little ones. So I hope you enjoy today's show, Episode 9 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Megan Taylor. Welcome to the show, Dr. Megan Taylor. It's so wonderful to have you here today.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. I'm excited to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking all about kids with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and it's something that I get contacted about a lot by parents who are trying to find solutions and answers to their poor sick kiddos who um, either have been diagnosed with SIBO or they suspect that they have SIBO and it's just such a pleasure to have you on the show because this is one of your areas that you specialise in working with kids and young people with SIBO so it's so good to have you here.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this topic.
0: Yeah, wonderful. I'd love to know how you got started. Like why did you uh, find yourself um, studying naturopathic medicine and becoming a naturopathic doctor and and then having a specialty in GI health and um, particularly with kids with SIBO?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I started in, I actually started before I even entered into the naturopathic medicine world. I was actually an environmental planner, and that's what I studied in school. And I went off and thought I was going to do awesome, amazing things and actually really loved my job, um, a lot of it, until I realized that um, – The sitting in a cubicle day in, day out, staring at a computer screen just really was not doing my health any favors. And I really struggled and was lucky enough to be introduced to a naturopath and acupuncturist and really had my world blown apart. Um, I had no idea that natural medicine was even a thing um, and was totally won over. And remember going through a process and working with her about You know, potentially doing something different with my life. You know, something that would give me a little bit more nourishment, feed my soul in a little bit different way, and than what I was getting out of my current profession. And she said, "Why don't you do what I do? You love it. You're so excited about it. So do it." And so I did, and I dove right in, feet first, probably without thinking enough um, about it, not quite realizing what I was signing up for. Medical school is is a lot. It's a big commitment. Um, But I'm so grateful that I did. I. It's funny. Sometimes the things we come into school with. um, I came in. I had a lot of my own gastrointestinal issues coming into school, um, and really shied away from specializing in it. Honestly, and focusing on it. I didn't really want to be one of those. um, I don't know, cliched (laughs) folks out there who's treating what they have. Um, But you really just can't avoid it when you have the personal experience. You really know how to speak to people about it. You know what it's like to have gone through the treatments and. what it's like to have been sick in that way. And so I had the pleasure of being in school about the same time that um, Dr. Sandberg-Lewis and Dr. Seebecker were really kind of discovering small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Um, And it was just one of those right place, right time, and right personality um, situations where I just totally jived with them. We got along great. And I ended up getting to do a lot of mentorship with both of them. And discovered just this whole area of functional and naturopathic gastroenterology that I absolutely love. It is it is so much fun, and the kids piece kind of came later. I I happened to be doing my internship in school, and um, for whatever reason, got got assigned a lot of the pediatric cases. And I I've loved working with children, kind of in all aspects of my life. Um, and happened to get these cases with these pediatric, these kiddos who are, who were really suffering and really struggling and parents who felt sort of at their wits end. And, um, I loved it. It, it was so inspiring to work with these kids. They're incredible. They're amazing responders. They're so resilient. And, um, I got so much pleasure out of working with them that I just said, this is it. This is, this is the population I want to work with. Um, they made my days, um, seeing those patients really just made my day. So, um, I'm excited to be, to be doing it and feel so lucky that I'm, I'm, I get to work with that patient population.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm sure the parents and kids that you have uh, worked with are very happy that you've chosen that pathway. (laughs) (laughs) What's, what are you seeing in your practice? Is, is this common for kids to have SIBO or to have GI issues? Um, and you know, what's happening with our kiddos out there?
1: Right, right. It's such a good question. It, It's really, yeah, GI issues are probably one of the leading reasons why parents bring their, their children into the doctor. You know, chronic um, stomach aches, uh, constipation, um you know, even urinary accidents have been have been um, linked to chronic digestive dis- disruption, discomfort, um, and so it's it's a huge reason why p- parents bring their kids to the doctor, and um, and and skin skin rashes, allergies, things like that, all these things that are related to the gut and gut health, and so we see that a lot, all the time, um, in naturopathic sort of medicine. Practice. We that's one of the things we're trained in. So when we talk about pediatrics, is how to treat. We treat everyone. We treat everyone's gut, but with pediatrics, it's so important because their guts are still developing, um, in a lot of ways, and and their immune systems are still developing. So it's a big focus for us. Um, The question about how how common SIBO is in kids is is a bigger one. Um, We don't have the research that we had um, we have with adults. We have oh my gosh, more studies than we even want on (laughs) how many adults have SIBO um and in kids it's very very <laughs> the research is very very poor um there's a study out of Poland in about 2015 that found um, in, a, in a population size of only about 100 pa- uh, pediatric patients, that about 60% of them, um, these pediatric patients specifically with abdominal pain, about 60% of them had um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Which is just interesting because that's you know about on par with our adults with IBS. Now this is just one study though, and there and really what we need are a lot more studies to tell us whether what what degree of SIBO is really present in the pediatric population.
0: Mm, that's interesting. And uh, let's hope that there are studies coming out in the future that uh, specifically look at kids with SIBO. Um, do kids suffer yeah. from the same types of symptoms as adults do when it comes to having SIBO?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the the symptoms are really similar, um, if not the same. The trouble is, is that kids don't describe them the same way, right? Adults have this whole host of words and language, descriptive language that we can use to describe our heartburn or our reflux or our bloating and our distension, and we can get really clear, right, exactly what's going on, um, exactly the symptoms that are present. But for kids, it's mostly like. My stomach hurts or my bottom hurts when I go to the bathroom or, you know, I just don't feel good. And so it takes a lot more um observation on the part of both myself as a physician and also parents. Parents come in reporting a lot. that's really helpful to me. You know, they notice that their kid's belly gets really distended throughout the day, for example. Um, they notice that when they, you know, press on their belly, it's quite hard or firm, or maybe they even notice that when they press on their belly and they're doing abdominal massage, that they might feel some stool, some hard stuff in there. Um, they can give us. They, parents are are so helpful in that they can give provide me a lot of information in terms of is SIBO really on our, on my radar, and that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for that that. Um, abdominal distension, right that excess gas production due to those bacteria that are overgrown where they really shouldn't be, that excess gas production that's contributing to abdominal pain, right stomach aches in the kids um, and then contributing to stool changes as well, whether that's a tendency towards loose stool and diarrhea or constipation. So we're looking you, more, more often than not I hear stomach aches and you know constipation or, or diarrhea are the big ones that come in.
0: And so if a parent is noticing that their child is gassy or having is suffering from distension, mm-hmm. or constipated or diarrhoea or swinging between the two, do mm-hmm. you feel that they are the, the best signs for a parent to then think, okay, maybe I should go and see somebody about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that any time a kiddo is complaining, especially of abdominal pain, um, you should have that worked out. Now, is it SIBO? That's a that's a thing we a whole another kind of topic to dissect. There are so many reasons why kids can be bloated, why kids can tend towards diarrhea or constipation, which I think is an important thing to keep in mind because all this research is coming out about SIBO. You know, a lot of parents themselves have been diagnosed with SIBO and are just are sure that their kiddos have it too. But in reality, Right, and and, we, and I know that we we might talk about this a little bit later. Um, kids don't have as much life, life, right? They haven't lived as much life. So what what often happens is we need we need to rule out all the other things that could be contributing to their symptoms first. It's sort of like like how IBS was sort of the diagnosis of last resort, um, kind of that diagnosis of exclusion that some people talk about it with SIBO. Really, we wanna we wanna hold off on, di- on diagnosing kiddos with that until we've ruled out, make sure there's no food allergies. You know, kids are really se- sensitive immunologically to certain foods, um, dairy and wheat probably being the biggest triggers for kids um, in terms of st- abdominal pain, stool changes and, and um, skin rashes, for example. So we look there initially. We also make sure that their really their digestive system is really up and functioning. We know that kids um when they're born, don't necessarily produce all the enzymes that they need in, in the amount. This, this shows up in all all sorts of um, body systems. It's one of the reasons why infants can get um, jaundiced or kind of that yellow appearance after birth. Kids don't always have their all their enzyme output, and that includes pancreatic enzymes um, output all up and running by the time that they're you know in their toddlerhood and and in their early you know four five six. And so, making sure those their digestive function is really on track is huge.
0: Um, and then just and how would you like, go about doing yeah, that?
1: Yeah, so so digestive function we can usually. Um, see a lot of this just from symptoms. So for example, pancreatic enzyme output, this is a really common one with kids that where their pancreas might just not be quite like up and running, right? Their digestive fire really isn't, isn't going yet. And so we look for, is there undigested food in the stool? Um, that's could probably be the most common, um, symptom of that, uh, abdominal bloating, that gassy, you know, distension, um, as well as abdominal pain can co-occur with that as well. So we look for symptoms. And then there also are fantastic tests. We um, do, in naturopathic medicine, we do comprehensive stool tests um, through various companies, Genova, Diagnostics, um, Doctors Data. There's wonderful companies out there that do these comprehensive stool panels that look at digestive enzymes specifically in the stool, specifically things like um, fecal elastase or fecal chymotrypsin. These are measures of pancreatic output And we often, I see kids come back with low output in the, in their, in the stool test. And so that tells us that we need to support that pathway, that digestive pathway.
0: That's really interesting. And so it sounds like the process is really one of elimination whereby you start with looking mm-hmm. at whether their digestive system is working uh, well or optimally. You look at the types of foods mm-hmm. that they're eating and that they may be reacting to. And then it sounds like you would look at whether if if the condition hasn't resolved after looking at those things that you would then look elsewhere and one of those conditions might be SIBO.
1: Yeah, it might be SIBO. I'd probably also fit in there before we go to SIBO is also um – how the kids are sort of constitutionally, right? Do they tend to be a little bit more of an anxious kid? Are they holding a lot of, you know, their nervousness and anxiety in their? the abdomen. We talk a lot about, you know, kids that where we know the digestive, the digestive system is really impacted by stress and impacted by excess worry. And, um, I see a lot of kids who for for whatever reason, it may, you know, it may be their life circumstances. It may be particular people in their lives. It may just be them constitutionally tends towards being a little bit more of a warrior. Um, that that can really impact digestive function. I, that's the surefire way to sort of shut off our digestive fire is to uh, be worried <laughs> and, be, and be anxious all the time. So I think I, I probably throw that in up, up top in addition to, you know, making sure digestive system is online, making sure we're not having any food sensitivities in the diet that might be contributing to symptoms, looking at their their nervous system balance.
0: And how do you approach, let's say – you you're looking at a kid that's an anxious kid that's someone that's really uh holds internally their their fears and anxieties and worries how would you approach yeah. uh helping them to relax and release some of that anxiety that is impacting their yeah. digestive system
1: yeah it's a really interesting thing to, to approach kids with because um as adults right we often get a lot of we, ha- we have that capacity to sort of see that that insight into oh yeah we I am feeling anxious right or I am you know feeling and and this might be why kids kids don't have that that developed um as much often as adults. That being said, I've probably seen some of the most insightful comments come from kids about how, you know, how they're feeling in their bodies. So I don't put it past them. They're really quite capable. Um, And I I approach it from many directions. It really depends on the family and and what they're interested in doing. Um, One of the easiest skills, especially if they're of age, you know, three, four, five, six and older who can really take, um, some direction and do some exercises are, um, visualization exercises, um, that, that visualize, um, I had a, a, a great one where with a constipated kiddo. And we, when we visualized, she, she was really into, into into dragons, right? Dragons, like magical dragons that fairies rode on. And so she would imagine this dragon sort of kind of heading through her large intestine, sort of helping her, her stool move through. And it seems kind of funny to us, but it was such so helpful for her to lay there, you know, breathing and doing that visualization. So I find whatever works for the kids and we develop a mindfulness practice for that. And it might be just learning how to do deep belly breathing. It might be practicing how to really recognize how they're feeling in their bodies, you know, taking a moment when they're feeling really upset. For example, some of the kiddos with more maybe behavioral components to their, to their, um, sort of stories, we might have, um, start changing language around, you know, when people, when they're getting really reactive, getting really worked up, having a t- temper tantrum, for, for example, really starting to coach parents to ask them, ask kids to tune into how their bodies are feeling, like really start building that mind-body awareness, um, that can work wonders. Even that in and of itself can be really wonderful for kids. And then if that if that doesn't work or it doesn't really fit for the family to do that kind of thing, we might look at um, using... Um, I've done, had a lot of good results with uh, diffusing essential oils in a room. So kiddos who, especially kiddos who have uh, more challenge, um, let's say sleeping at night, we know health, you know, healthy sleep is so important for kids, their growth and development. And so we might diffuse lavender essential oil throughout the room, or one that they really enjoy that helps them relax. Um, Sometimes I um, will use Supplementation, things like L-theanine and other kind of amino acid support—that's really specific to the kiddo, though, for sure, and definitely requires. Um, I usually like doing some testing before I actually treat that. Um, and I think the last thing, and it's probably the most powerful that I use, is homeopathy. And that is a whole whole nother conversation, and a lot of a lot of opinions about the effectiveness of homeopathy. But I see amazing results in kids. They are often very vital and responsive and a well-prescribed homeopathic remedy can really change um, the sort of the, the nervous system balance that that kid comes into the office with.
0: And listening to you talk, I know and I know we're talking about kids today, but gosh, there's so much that you can take away even as an adult that is experiencing any kind of digestive disorder because oh, yes. <laughs> even all of this is so is so useful and relevant to even us older people.
1: <laughs> and I I think back Absolutely. to myself. It's it's huge and we
0: learn so much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um when I was a kid, I remember clearly being sick and saying to my mum. Uh, mum, I feel sick. And she would say, well, what, what do you feel sick with? And I'd say, I don't know, I just feel sick. And I quite often felt this kind of low-level nausea. Um, I never went – I just never went to the toilet. I was chronically constipated from day one, really, yeah. it seemed. And, um but I couldn't really explain it, and she'd take me to the doctors, and the doctor would say, "What's wrong with you?" And I'd say, "I don't know. I just feel sick." And <laughs> so it makes me, uh, you know, smile in the sense that you're—that's—they're the kind of words that you're hearing from the kids that are coming through and seeing you. Yes. If only exactly. we had doctors back when I was a kid that knew what I feel sick <laughs> could have meant. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know what. Um, whether there's an age where you see SIBO developing in kids, or whether it can appear at any age in a child,
1: yeah, it it's interesting. Like I kind of alluded to in the beginning, right? Kids, they've they've lived less life, right? So they've have less, they've experienced less interventions, they've experienced um, fewer of the sort of you know, assaults is a strong word, but fewer of like sort of the the um, Medical interventions that many adults have experienced that then result in them developing SIBO. So for example, one thing that we work with in adult population a lot is um, long-term medication use that changes motility, for example, can be a huge risk factor. Um, Having had surgeries, right, um, especially abdominal and pelvic surgeries, creating adhesions, another huge risk factor. Um, And then gastroenteritis or food poisoning, traveler's diarrhea, any of these gut infections can be a huge, huge risk factor, right, for developing SIBO. Kids, right? They have they have had they've lived less years, so they typically have less exposure and less likely to have experienced some of these things. Um, that being said, I've dealt, I've worked with kids who, at mom knows, at six months old, they had a terrible food poisoning or stomach flu, and that's when everything started. So it's not not to say that it can't happen, but um, we're usually looking for kids, especially the really young ones, who are coming in, um, you know, in that in that two, three, four um five age range that are having a lot of these symptoms we're often looking at things um, that are more um, congenital things that they're coming into this world with that are predisposing them to either poor motility or, some sort of impact to their protective barriers. And we see this reflected in their research a lot. Um, Kids with immunodeficiency, for example, um, things like selective IgA deficiency, which is basically when our bodies don't produce a type of immunoglobulin that helps protect us against infections that can predispose kids um, to developing SIBO. Um, conditions like cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy absolutely impact motility and impact and cause the development um, or can contribute to the development of SIBO. Um, we see this a lot too in kids um, on the autistic spectrum, or kids with chromosomal abnormalities. Um, these kids are at great risk for mitochondrial dysfunction. Which we know, mitochondria—the little powerhouses, the little batteries of our cells. Right? We need those for good, healthy gastrointestinal motility. And if those are impacted in whatever in some way, we see that that reflected in the development of SIBO. Um, And these kids also often suffer from hypothyroidism. We actually know that congenital hypothyroidism, so hypothyroidism that kids either experience in the womb or or soon after birth, is actually on the rise, which is a little little terrifying. And we know that hypothyroidism in adults, we see that as a risk factor for SIBO, and that's the same thing for kids. So it's an interesting, um, when you look at the research, it's it's very much these sort of specific diseases have been um, associated with SIBO um, and less about like the life factors, the lay, the la- life living that has happened.
0: That's very true. As you say, they just mm-hmm. haven't been on this planet for long enough to have experienced some yeah. of those life factors that us adults have yeah. experienced.
1: So at, at yeah. what point I do, they- I do say though that, Oh, I'm sorry, Rebecca. I would, I would say, um, one of the things that's interesting is that, um, one of the things we we should we should always recognize and think about is um, the use of proton pump inhibitors or acid blocking medications. Um, that's one thing that I, I almost slipped my memory, but is so important to address because that's actually those are being prescribed frequently for children frequently for ba- infants and children um infants often for uh spit up right like chronic reflux and spit up um are prescribed proton pump inhibitors um kids with abdominal pain are prescribed proton pump inhibitors and that's a huge risk factor right we know that blocking our the acid production in our stomach doesn't allow us to properly protect ourselves against bacteria overgrowing in the stomach and then in the intestines and so um, that's something to always be, consi- be considering too if, if your child has been prescribed a proton pump inhibitor because you went to your gastroenterologist and said they have pain or something, that that could be um, contri- uh, co- contributing to the development of SIBO.
0: Mm, that's a very important point that you're making there. Um, what about uh, the, and I've read quite a bit around the uh, impact around cesarean births and mm-hmm. um, breastfeeding or lack thereof mm-hmm. and the impact that that can have on developing a healthy gut microbiome. Yeah. Are you seeing any correlation between babies that have been born um, via cesarean um, and you know, potentially also not breastfed with SIBO developing later?
1: Absolutely. Um, We see that. We know that breastfed status is um, a huge. Sort of predictor of the development of small intestine bacterial overgrowth. We know that as children are breastfed, they're they're receiving so many things via breast milk that help to mature the uh, immune system in the gut, and that is the same true for the um, flora that you receive via vaginal birth versus a cesarean or you know birth in the hospital. Um, without that healthy um, microbiome, um, via the birth canal and breastfeeding kiddos are, are, do not have the, um, the immune system that's in the enteric immune system, the immune system that's in the gastrointestinal tract, which is where a vast majority of our immune system lives and resides because that's where we come in contact with the outside world for the most part. Um, that does not have the adequate, adequate time and, um, to develop and not the adequate the right sorts of inputs to develop. And so we end up seeing kids at greater risk for um, not only small intestine bacterial overgrowth, especially that, that later in life, but also things like um, increase in food allergies or food sensitivities, um, or um, just more sort of immune reactivity in general, that sort of allergic triad of, of eczema, asthma, and hay fever. Um, can We see that a lot in kids that, that weren't breastfed. So really important. It helps to not only, establish a healthy microbiome. It also helps to um, heal up all those, you know, kids are born with naturally leaky guts as infants. It's the the whole point to our gastrointestinal tract as infants is supposed to be quite leaky so that we can uh, absorb all all the immune proteins that our mother's milk provides. And so, but that, that, um, that milk, that breast, that being breastfed, and then that, that healthy microbiome inherited from the vaginal uh, birth canal, are supposed to kind of help stitch that up over time so that we end up with a good um, barrier between us and the outside world.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you know, my myself, I was born premature. I was born uh, vaginally, but my um, poor mum was pretty sick, so she couldn't mm. breastfeed me. Mm-hmm. So I was put straight onto formula and pumped full of antibiotics. So oh,
1: I had a pretty yeah, tough it's butt. a rough start. And we see, we hear that we hear that so much. Not not only with our pediatric patients, but also, of course, with our adult patients, where really, they, we we didn't, you know, there's there's a huge. Sort of unanswered question, and I think research is only going to continue to provide us um, great information about what it means when we don't inherit that ancestral microbiome. You know, we're now dealing with multi-generational lack of inherited microbiome, where maybe you know mom was born via via cesarean section, and you know now maybe grand you know grandchild is born via cesarean section, and so. Um, or not breastfed for whatever reason, so we're seeing that kind of happen over generations. Kind of the com- the compounded effect of that.
0: What can people do if the, What can mothers do if they have had to have a cesarean or they haven't been able to breastfeed because, unfortunately, not everyone can. There are situations that prevent that from occurring. Is there anything that a that a mother can do to help uh, help support her baby's um, microbiome?
1: That's a really great question. I feel like I'm not probably the best person to answer that. I know a lot of people who specialize directly in infant care, um, and it's something. It's funny. It's a it's a question that Dr. Sandberg Lewis and I have been have talked about um, recently, and thought we should we should come up with a protocol for that because we see so much of it after the fact. You know, you know, two or three or five or twenty years after the fact. Um, but I think, and so it's it's best probably answered by. Um, Somebody's pediatrician or a functional sort of, um, you know, OB guy who can who can give a lot of feedback there. I know frequently people will introduce probiotics quite early as a way to help um, kind of the 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 enteric nervous the enteric. immune system really develop in the, in the right way.
0: That sounds like a topic for another podcast.
1: <laughs> yes, that could be a whole, that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah, exactly. It could be. So let's
0: move on to the actual uh, diagnosis of SIBO with kids. So, you know, we assume that um, mm-hmm. a parent and their physician with the child have gone through a variety of um, pre-tests to rule out other conditions and it's still looking like it might be SIBO. So mm-hmm. how do you go about testing children? Because in, adult, in adults, we would do the breath test, but can that be done with young kids?
1: Yeah, it actually absolutely can. And it really is dependent on the kid. I've had no problem getting kids as young as four to complete the breath test. Um, Allison's told me a couple kids um, as young as three that she's helped to uh, kind of help coach the family through getting um the breath test, and really, it's just a matter of whether that they can sort of blow on command, right? <laughs> like um, that we know from having having done the breath test that it requires, you know, you know, drinking a lactulose solution or taking a, a pre-lactulose sample, a drinking your sugar solution, and then blowing every twenty minutes into little vials. Um, a lot of kids can do this actually, and you can um, do a lot of coaching um, prior, leading up to the breath test, whether that be blowing through straws or blowing through a, um, like blowing up balloons or anything that kind of helps them learn how to blow. Um, and kids can be really successful at it. In fact, some of my best, the best breath tests I get back are, are done with parents and kids who are doing them, um, the other key piece of course is uh, the, making sure that the, the kid will actually drink the sugar solution it's sort of funny you think kids would all be all about drinking drinking the sugar um, drink but i have had uh, several occasions where parents said they got to it and they just didn't want to do it like it just they didn't like it it was too sweet <laughs> just funny um and so let – kind of, again, kind of preparing them for that. Like kids do amazing when they have – are able to practice and prepare for what's what's coming up and not to be um, – not to have things sort of sprung on them or to have them be unexpected. Um, So those are some tips I give, um, you know, picking out the the favorite straw and cup they want to drink their sugar, sugar solution for through um, and then practicing the, the blowing beforehand. And then the last thing I would say, if, if doing a breath test is, is, is deemed feasible for the kid is that doing an in-house breath test, if that's available in your community can be really helpful because then whoever's collecting the samples can just test them right there off the that, they know if they're a good sample or not. And if they're not, they can recollect. So it doesn't, you don't waste the, um, you know, run the risk of having a, a quote unquote bad test, I guess. Um, now, if breath tests are not possible, and that's always the question, question that I get, and parents are like, no way, that's just, that's not going to be doable. Like that's too hard for our family. We can do something called um, a, a urine test. Um, there's a particular com- compound found in urine, um, a urinary Um, acid that's excreted called 4-hydroxyphenylacetic acid. It's a long, long name. Um, It's tested by a lot of panels. The one I I use primarily is Genova's Organics with an X dysbiosis profile. It measures this um, urinary acid in the urine and this can give us. This is a, a pretty darn good reflection. When this is being produced, we have a pretty good idea that there's something going on in the small intestine. That there's some sort of small intestine dysbiosis or small intestine overgrowth. Um, it's been validated in the, in um, studies. The downside to it. So it's can be really helpful just to say, "Yep, this is this is what's going on." The downside to it is, that unlike the breath test, it's a little harder to determine. You know, based on levels how long and with which kind of protocol should we treat. We know that with breath tests, we can, we see, you know, is there hydrogen gas? Is there methane gas? Okay. Maybe both of those gases are present. How high do they peak? You know, what's their peak in the small intestine? Okay. Now we know kind of how many rounds that this, this person will need to be treated with before we can kind of, we're safe to assume we've gotten back to a sort of a normal breath test. So it's without, without that, that breath test curve, it's a little harder. That being said, Kids are like I've, I've said so many times. Kids are amazing responders, and sometimes a single round of treatment is really all that they need, and they do they do fantastically on that. So if we can't do a breast test, then I move on to this um, dysbiosis profile, this urinary profile, and that's pretty easy to collect. We do have some some families who say I can't even collect urine on my kids, so we just have them wake their kiddo up really early in the morning, sit them on the toilet, and just with a little you know there's per- urine collection devices, and just wait because they. They will urinate at some point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they will. And what do you how do you approach the actual treatment with kids? Is it the same in terms of what you would do for adults?
1: I would say in a large in a large part um, the antimicrobial ki- treatment can be similar. Um, we st- we have our antibiotic our pharmaceutical antibiotic options. We have our herbal options. I do definitely don't go anywhere near an elemental diet with kids unless the 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 kid is. Um, Actually, on a feeding tube, and a feeding tube is what is what they're where they get their primary nutrients. Sometimes we do recommend different types of formula. Um, if they're if they're using like if they're they're using a peptamine or something like that, we might use an elemental diet formula instead as a way of um, decreasing symptoms. But usually that's kind of off the table because kids are growing and they need they need lots of good, healthy, nourishing foods um, to grow strong bodies. So we typically stay within in the herbal or antibiotic route. Um, there have been a few Studies not enough. um, As as my ongoing theme about using antibiotics in kids to treat SIBO, Um, there's a couple. They use um, usually smaller doses than what is given to adults, so um, potentially even close to half the dose to what's given to adults. um, For most studies showed, um, and of of the rifaximin, and then neomycin has been used. Again, we use a smaller dose, often half the dose for kids, depending on their size. Um, And we really have not used metronidazole. These are the the three sort of most common antibiotics that a lot of the SIBO community might be familiar with. We really haven't used metronidazole um, in our pediatric population. There are some studies that show um, potential um, cancer-promoting effects of these things, of that that medication. And so we just really stay away from it um, in our our child population. Um, I think more frequently I use herbs with kids.
0: Sure. And I, I was going to ask, do you, yeah, do you favor one over the other, which you've just answered for me? And would you ever use politics?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think that um, it really depends on the family, right? I, I, as, a, as, a, as a doctor, my main job is to educate about alternatives. And then I go with whatever the parents are leaning towards. And a lot of parents are really uncomfortable about the idea of using antibiotics in their kids. Now, that being said, I've had great luck using Rifaximin with children. In fact, I will often use Rifaximin in combination with herbs as sort of like a combo treatment. Um, or we just go the herb route. Um, we use similar herbs to what we use in adults. We often will use allison, the garlic extract, um, if methane is present. Um, we, mu- we use berberine, though um, it's a harder one, a harder sell because kids, you know, again, they're swallowing capsules. There's a liquid version of allicin that makes it really a lot easier to give to kiddos um we we've used less um oregano it's quite a hot herb so we typically don't go there or cinnamon again quite a hot herb kids don't usually need more heat in their gastrointestinal tract so we don't typically go there um we've had we've used a little bit of neem um in in some kiddos and i think the one that would, one that we've probably had maybe the most experience with maybe not the most but is is really well tolerated by kids is the biocide in combination by biobotanical research That one is, um, most kids don't mind the taste. It's kind of on the sweet side. And um, we've been able to use that quite a bit because of its liquid and it's quite a low dose. You know, at maximum, maybe taking five drops three times a day. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: So, what are the implications of not treating SIBO in kids if you just leave it?
1: That's a really good question, and I don't think one that's probably talked about enough. Um, I think we don't know <laughs> is actually the probably the most honest answer. Um, it's likely that kids have been have had SIBO, you know, has small intestine issues for as long as we can remember, right, people have always been getting food poisoning, you know, they've always experienced these things. Now, maybe not to the degree we're experiencing where we have food poisoning on top of not being breastfed on top of a cesarean birth on top of maybe some mitochondrial dysfunction, that kind of layered issue that makes it makes it a little harder for kids to really bounce back to be resilient. But we know that this is this is happened before and we haven't always been actively going after SIBO. Um, That being said, I also know that there are, when we talk about adults with SIBO, we know that uh, bacterial overgrowth can contribute to the development of increased gut permeability or leaky gut. And we think long-term that leaky gut can contribute to the development to to the development of immune system dysfunction. So, if we're thinking sort of theoretically about kids, we might also think of that um, increased gut permeability in children contributing to allergies, autoimmune disease, um, eczema, you know, hay fever, asthma, those things maybe later in life. Now, again, that's entirely um, sort of theoretical um, from my perspective. We don't really have a lot of evidence to support that, but it m- sort of makes sense theoretically. It makes sense from that sort of, you know, that aspect of um, naturopathic medicine that I love so much, which is really about prevention, um, really preventing those things from occurring. So really helping to support healthy digestion in whatever way that is, whether or not it's treating SIBO in the way that I described, it may be supporting healthy digestion in another way could could help to prevent those um, diseases from developing later in life. Mm.
0: And 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 if we look at the study of one, which is Rebecca Coombs, <laughs> and I look at my <laughs> own, <health> training, <laughs> and that yeah. being you know two months premature, not breastfed, although vaginally born, um, significant amounts of antibiotics throughout my childhood because I got sick constantly. I got every single thing mm. going, and I always got the worst case yeah. of it. Um, You know, I got uh, chicken pox to such an extreme case that the doctor was talking about photographing me for medical journals, Um, then food intolerances. So that I, I started off, I was never great with dairy. And then as I got older, I became less tolerant to other foods. And by my mid-20s, I'd been diagnosed Mm -hmm. with endometriosis. And then around the time that I was diagnosed with SIBO, I also got diagnosed with hemochromatosis, which Mm. uh, is a condition where my my. body thinks that it doesn't have enough iron, which is generally the opposite for women. They normally don't have enough iron. And my (laughs) iron saturation levels were just increasing steadily. Uh, but interestingly, since uh, treating my SIBO and working on trying to improve my leaky gut and bringing down the inflammation in my body, the hemochromatosis has uh, is not so active and my um, iron saturation has dropped back to a normal range and my endometriosis is almost Mm. non-existent. I really don't feel it anymore and I'm able to eat a broader range of foods again. So it's been really interesting in this little personal experiment of myself to see how I have actually been able to um, improve some of my conditions which I had suffered from for many years. And the, the really awesome thing for me is that I used to spend every single winter in bed for at least four weeks over the over the course of mm. winter, and I'd get sick throughout the year. But winter was particularly rough for me. I have not spent a day in bed since I commenced <laughs> my SIBO treatment, which is almost two years ago, and it's amazing. <laughs> I go through winters, and I'm not sick. It's just it's like a new life. It's really incredible. So it's it's good That's for so you know, anyone wonderful. listening that. You can actually uh, things can reverse, and who knows what my ultimate life yeah. journey will be with my ultimate medical health history. Because I'm, let's hope I've still got many years of life left ahead of me. But it's really nice to see some conditions uh, mm-hmm. turning around.
1: Absolutely, it's it's huge, and it's so it's a story that we hear so often as people address their gut health. We really see we really see this shift in a big way.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about food because food is yeah. something that, you know, we do every day. We all eat and it can often be such a point of stress and anxiety for parents and kids alike. Um, what do you yeah. generally do when it comes to foods yeah. with kids that are, that are experiencing SIBO?
1: Yeah, I think it's such an important topic. I would, I would love to just talk about, have a whole podcast to talk about food, and and all these diets that we keep putting ourselves on. Um, I think with kids, we have to just be really cautious. Um, Kids, like I mentioned earlier, are growing. They're so active and. constantly kind of on the move, burning calories. They need so much more nutrition than we as adults do. So I really shy away from restrictive diets with kids, even in the interim, because I've seen it uh, impact their growth curves. I've seen it impact their ability to gain weight and gain height. And so I really am hesitant to restrict. That being said, there are some kids who just have legitimate food sensitivities. They just cannot do dairy. They cannot do wheat without developing you know, getting all snotty and having rashes and maybe their behavior gets all over the place. So there are those things that we recognize that we can eat a really healthy balanced diet without those, maybe those foods. So there's that. And then in my SIBO kids, we do have a long conversation because I know that they're going to go home. Parents are going to go home. They're going to research. They're going to find these diets online and they're going to be like, why didn't you tell me about this? Um, why didn't you tell me that I shouldn't eat these high FODMAPS foods or these, you know, you know all, all these different diets? And so we have a long conversation about um, how we can use especially like low FODMAPs resources as a, as a resource for what foods might be making your kid more symptomatic, making, make, giving your kid up to, uh, stomach aches, for example. Um, I think a really good example came from a case that I had um, really early with a little girl that had uh, chronic constipation, um, skin rashes, Bloating, right? A big gassy belly, um, and you know, she, she had been told by a lot of um, you know by indy that she had seen previously a naturopathic doctor that she'd seen previously that you know best thing for constipation in kids is to feed them stewed prunes, right? It's like the the sort of what grandmothers did, right? Stewed prunes to kids, um, get them to eat them somehow, and they'll they won't be constipated. And My family came, the family came in and they talked to me and they said, I just, it just doesn't seem to be working. I just, we just don't understand. In fact, it seems to be making her worse. Like we give her this and she won't go for three days. It turns out, right? Stewed prunes and they were also doing figs and some other dried fruit, right? They can be a little higher in these uh, polyols, right? These these high FODMAPs um, foods and, or these high, these high, these um, FODMAP containing foods and they were making her her bloating worse and her constipation worse. And so doing that kind of education with parents saying, you know, actually, these foods probably aren't going to be really great for your kid. Let's focus on, you know, all these other healthy foods that we can do. So we focus a lot on really encouraging a whole foods diet as best we can, you know, good sources of proteins, eggs, meat, maybe lactose-free dairy, really shying away from drinking milk and really focusing more on, on that those, those lactose-free dairy sources um, and then really healthy sources of grains and we might suggest things um, you know I typically don't don't modify their grain consumption um, but we sometimes will talk about especially if we think gluten is a sensitivity or a wheat is a sensitivity we might talk about a wheat free um, or gluten-free um, approach to grains but really it is a my goal behind diet is to keep it as broad as we can because most kids are coming in only wanting to eat five things anyway so we don't we don't really want to limit them anymore. Um, then they already kind of have limited themselves.
0: And that was going to be my next question. How do you work with kids um, and parents who have kids who are particularly fussy eaters because there are kids out there that just don't want to eat many items. They've yeah. got a few and that's it. <laughs> How do you and what if those items yes. are actually the things that are triggering yes. some of these symptoms? How do you work with them to to overcome that situation?
1: It's such a hard one. And um, I really feel for parents when they come in and talk about it because it can just make people want to pull their hair out. It's so frustrating. Um, And really the, what I find even in my pickiest eaters, I'm able to find alternatives, right? Say like they love dairy and they just really want to eat dairy. And I don't, and I don't think it's necessarily causing them, you know, I don't think they have enough sensitivity to it. Okay. dairy's great. We're just going to do only lactose free dairy, right? You're not going to have a big glass of milk in the morning. Maybe we do lactose free milk. Maybe we do lactate and add some lactase enzyme to it, right? So you make it more lactose, lactose free. Um, Or we focus, you know, beige, you know, those that kind of like the beige food diet, which a lot of kids really, really gravitate towards. Doesn't mean there's, we can't get healthful calories in there, right? Um, And doesn't mean that they necessarily are going to be worsening their symptoms. So we really work with on an individual basis. What is your kid eating and how can we get them to make sure? um, I I see a lot with, with kids who are that more picky eater or fussy eater. Often these kids also are a little on the underweight or low weight side. So we talk about how do we get their cal- calories up and what what do they really like and what can we do. I am not I'm I do not shy away from hiding things in kids' food. <laughs> you can see recipes online all the time about waste hide vegetables and your kids, you know, you know, spinach and brownies or black beans and brownies or things like that or smoothies. Smoothies are like one of my go-tos for that. Um really trying to get more, more nutrition. And at, 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 a very, you know, for some of our kids that are really picky eaters, um, we sometimes will do supplemental nutrition as well, you know, multivitamins or things like that to really help make sure that they're getting balanced nutrition. Um, but I suggest for a lot of those families that they work, you know, either with myself or somebody like a nutritionist who can really help them navigate, um, getting more foods and more diverse foods into, into the diet. But it's a, it's a challenge. It's, I feel like it's a, Never-ending challenge with parents; it's it it just doesn't go away. This problem of of fussy eaters.
0: Mm. And is there a way that you um, test for food in, uh, sensitivities or intolerances? Like if a, if a kid's kind of reacting to a whole range of foods, how do you yeah. go about identifying which of the foods that are problematic?
1: Yeah, I think most frequently um, there's kind of two ways to do it. One is just to observe. You know, the kid has a ton. They eat, you know, dairy is their favorite food and they eat a ton of it. And um, you can do what's called an elimination trial where you take it out. And then you see what happens. Um, this can and this works better with adults because usually adults have a broader, you know, they're able to eat alternatives. Kids less likely to eat alternatives. So often, what I turn to is not my necessarily the most scientific method, but um, is food sensitivity testing, where you're testing for antibody levels, you um, know, uh, IgG or IgE um, to certain um, food foods. Um, there's a couple, many, many different companies that run these kinds of um, food sensitivity panels. Um, they all have to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. We see, for example, eggs come up on them almost constantly with kids. Doesn't mean that every kid is allergic to eggs. Um, it may be that there is just a sort of ongoing reaction or this test is particularly sensitive at picking that up. Um, so they need to be... Um, interpreted with a grain of salt. And really, um, when we get those results, then we'll do the elimination and we'll see, okay, they might be sensitive to X, Y, and Z foods. Let's eliminate those. Let's see how they do. Um, That process requires a lot of communication back and forth with the parents and myself to find healthy alternatives. Um, And then we kind of move forward from there, knowing that those foods, because they came up on a food sensitivity test, different than a food allergy test, right? It's not like a peanut allergy where they have anaphylaxis and swelling and trouble breathing and all those things. They likely, and many kids grow out of these sensitivities, so it's something to know if if they come back positive on a test. It's not a life sentence for the kid.
0: And do you then work with the parent and the child to reintroduce foods at a certain yeah. time to yeah. see if they can tolerate them again.
1: Tolerate them. Exactly. The same thing that so many of us have probably done when we've done elimination diets, when we've, you know, treated SIBO, when we've gone back to eating a broader diet is really being cautious about that trial elimination period or the trial reintroduction period, you know, introducing new foods maybe once every three days and really being co- conscientious of the fact that um, the body reacts differently to, you know, a, you know, cheddar that's been aged for, Three months versus, you know, this yogurt that you picked up in the grocery store versus, you know, the milk off the shelf, right? There's a whole ways that our, our body will react differently to different forms of particular foods. So um, we, talk, we talk a lot about that and try to do it as, you know, cautiously and scientifically as we can.
0: Yeah, now we talked a little bit earlier about the association between other conditions and SIBO, and I'm just wondering whether those conditions, those um, maybe primary conditions, are uh, seen to improve or decrease when SIBO is treated. Is there a correlation between you know healing the gut and then perhaps seeing an improvement in uh, yeah a, a primary condition that the child has?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say clinically we see that time and time again. I wouldn't say that there's a whole host of research out there necessarily to support us just yet, but we see it often that if we can address gut health, a lot of these other conditions can... um, can really be improved. Everything from sort of immune system dysfunction, allergies, um, skin rashes, asthma, um, to more mood mood based symptoms, maybe behavioral disorders, things like that. Um, kiddos on the autism spectrum t- tend to, you know, really struggle with digestive health, and we're able to get them um, with. A kind of a healthy, healthy functioning gut as best we can. They often do, we will notice a lot of their, their particular behaviors, whatever is unique to that child. Um, really move in the right direction. So we see that a lot. And I, I, I guess I could just point to the gaps, um, you know, gut and psychology syndrome uh, book, um, all that good work by Natasha Campbell McBride that really shows, um, and so many parents have had incredible results with um, treating the gut and really seeing that reflected in their children's health.
0: Um, mm. And what would be your approach of treating other illnesses? And it might even just be a simple cold and flu when you're also treating SIBO. Um, I know from an adult perspective, often people become very reluctant to use any other antibiotics or or mm-hmm. forms of treatment if they get sick um, because they're worried that it might mm-hmm. undo the work they've done for their SIBO. What's the approach mm-hmm. that you take for uh, yeah. supporting kids with other illnesses and also dealing with SIBO?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel like we get that all the time, not only in kids, but um, adults as well. You know, you did all this really good work and you don't want to screw it up. Um, and so the first thing I do is really try to um, uh, help people uh, reduce their fear around um, medications, right? One round of antibiotics is not likely going to set you back um, in a huge way. Um, that being said, there are a lot of ways that we can we can improve um, we, there are a lot of ways we can address conditions and, imp- and more importantly, improve immunity. So one of the things I often work on with kids, especially kids that are chronically ill and parents are like, well, okay, we could start this SIBO treatment, but they're going to need, you know, antibiotics again, you know, in a couple of months when winter hits and they get their ear infection that they always get, you know. We will talk a lot about prevention, right? Are vitamin D levels sufficient? Do they have good sources of vitamin D to make sure that they their immune system is functioning appropriately? Are have we decreased the amount of um, antigenicity, the, the those food sensitivities that they have in their life, because that can trigger inflammation and can be incredible at preventing? Um, we make sure that they're getting, they you know, they have the right. Um, vitamins and minerals on board. A lot of kids, um, especially, you know, our kids with digestive disorders um, really do need a little extra support in terms of multivitamins and multiminerals to make sure that their immune systems are functioning. And then there's so many other things, you know, elderberry syrup, probably my hands down favorite, Um, just tiny little amounts can be incredibly helpful in preventing um, colds and flus um, when we move into flu season and kids love it. Um, So we can go there as well.
0: I've never heard of elderberry syrup, so that's really interesting. I have to. <gasps>
1: you, add that to my kids. you must. Oh. You must look at it. Yes, <laughs> I will. <laughs> it's it's quite amazing. It's delicious and um and very effective.
0: And how does it work? How does it boost the immune system?
1: That is a really good question, and I don't think I know the answer to that from a um, immunologic standpoint. It is I know that there have been several studies on it helping to prevent flu. Um, but I don't think I know the answer about how it's actually stimulating the immune system.
0: Well, there you go. There's some there's some research for me to go and do and then I can tell my community more about it and <laughs> and I can look yes, at it for myself. I know, as I'm well. gonna do it too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> pop yeah. on the on the internet
0: yes absolutely now another really important component is the emotional side of of dealing with a condition like SIBO emotional both for the kid and for the parent um do you have some kind of coping strategies that you have that you work with your parents and kids alike on how to just survive and deal with a condition like SIBO because it can be really isolating and and I think of um I think of the kids out there that you know especially if they're dealing with food sensitivities and or they eat foods and it makes them feel sick they're probably going to feel different to their friends which is the worst thing when you're a kid you don't want to be different from Anybody want to be exactly yeah. the same friends? You don't want to turn up to parties and not be able to eat the food. So, how do you work with parents and kids around this very important piece of life with SIBO?
1: Yeah, it's such it's such an important part of um, working with the whole person, which is absolutely what we want to do um, when we're addressing SIBO or any health condition. And I think the thing that I um, probably spend the most time doing is just education, Um, really helping the parents and children understand that the things that they're doing are to have, um, to have a healthy and strong body. Um, And it's amazing what that can do with, with kids if they really understand, like, I'm doing this, I don't eat dairy, because when I eat dairy, I feel sick. When they're empowered with that information, they'll tell their friends, and it's kind of amazing. Um, they have they have often, you know, until once they hit their you know preteen years, it's a whole another story. But often in the in the younger years, they're quite um, upfront and able to really. Um, describe you know what's going on um, with them and 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 not necessarily feel uh, worried I think I actually deal more with uh, parents and parents worry about their kids being isolated or feeling different or feeling weird and again that education around that this is just a normal, you know, this is a normal thing. There are plenty of other families out there who are struggling with this that are having to eat this way or avoid these certain foods or do these kinds of treatments. And that can really um, go a long way because one of the, you know, one of the, I don't want to say the worst things, but one thing that can be really impactful to children's health is their parents' worry right? If parent, if parent is, you know, vigilant, constantly looking out for, did they eat these right foods? Did they, oh, did they have any symptoms? Oh, is that a little bit of bloating? Or how was their stool today? You know, all of these things like that, that, um, the anxiety that that brings in can really impact the kid without the kid even telling you, right? They don't, they don't need to be aware of it. Their, their nervous systems are aware of that ongoing anxiety. So I really talk, try to make this not a, about a, a disease conversation, right that this is not something that the, the, the kid is going to be dealing with forever. This is not a scary diagnosis. this is really common and um, what we do is we learn how to we learn how to live with it in a lot of ways And not to say we don't treat it. we absolutely do. but we also learn that there are things that this this particular body, right this, this whoever you are, this body might just need to be a little bit more aware of you know, whether it be foods or stress or getting enough water or having the right position when you're pooping, <laughs> like all of these things, right? There are just things that we might be a little bit more aware of. Um, and I think that only builds healthy relationships for kids around um, really knowing their bodies and understanding their bodies.
0: Yeah. And I think it's great advice for parents that are listening to the podcast that, uh, being mindful of their own, uh, their own anxiety and, and the impact that that might have on their kids. And it's so natural as a parent to, to be worried about your precious little baby, you know, mm-hmm. your little, the little bundle of joy that you brought into the world. Yeah. And if they're not doing as well as you had hoped that they would, that it's, like, it's totally understandable yeah. that yeah. that is a really stressful thing for a parent yeah. to have to go through.
1: Very scary, very, very heartbreaking for a lot of families that just want their kids to be healthy and well. Yeah. Do you see
0: a correlation in families? If like one kid has SIBO, do you often find that a parent might have it or a sibling might have it?
1: I do see um, a fair amount of correlation, whether it's actually SIBO or just digestive sort of issues. I I see that happen, Um, but not always, not in the same way. And I think that part of that is because. Excuse me. Part of that is because, again, going back to that less li- like less life years, right? Less interventions happen, less exposure has happened. So maybe all the family at some point gets gastroenteritis, right, or food poisoning, right, and then two of the family members come down with SIBO. That's I've seen that. I've seen that happen. But the other two don't, right? Because the other two, for whatever reason, were more resilient against that um, against that particular infection. So I sort of see it, and I don't. I see it uh, plenty of times where it they, they comes in. it comes um, in families and other times where it, 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 absolutely isn't in this, you know, just the one kid has this and, and we don't necessarily know why we can't necessarily pinpoint it, any particular reason.
0: Yeah. And I look at my own family and, uh, There's definitely some digestive issues going on in our Mm -hmm. household. (laughs) And uh, I seem to be the only one that is doing anything about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As so often happens, right? A lot of people just live with this, right? That's how how the whole IBS conversation, right? People are diagnosed with IBS and you just live with it or don't want to talk about it. Because it feels embarrassing or whatever.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, my final uh, sort of thing to talk about is um, as I developed, uh, sorry, as I went through my own journey to reclaim my health and get so much better than I had been for years, I realized I had to address five key areas. And I'd love to just briefly touch on them in terms of uh, in relevance to kids and we have talked about some of them but what I realized I had to do was I had to focus on my awareness so reconnecting with my body and my surroundings and my mind and all the rest. Um, I had to think about my nutrition and uh, really focus on what was good nutrition for my body to help me get well. There was the movement component because I'd been pretty sluggish. I hadn't moved well, I hadn't been moving a lot. In fact, I'd sat in <laughs> front of a computer for many, many years um my mindset was an enormous piece of the puzzle that I had to work on. Um, that really only when I started to work on that did did my health really start to improve. And then the fifth piece that I realised I had to work on was my lifestyle. So putting supportive measures in place, things like stress reduction, improving the quality and quantity of my sleep, um, looking at my relationships and friendships, and and all of those types of things that gave me the support or the foundations to continue to work towards health. How important do you think that those five key pillars are when it comes to kids that are dealing with a condition like SIBO?
1: I love those pillars. I think they are so perfect for (laughs) anyone with any any health condition. Um, I think they're absolutely imperative for kids, just as they are for adults um, in in getting well. Um, I think about especially movement, you know, that it just popped into my mind. We've talked about so many of these kind of in bits and pieces throughout our conversation, but movement we really haven't ta- talked to. Uh, talked to. And I would say that I have had amazing results just getting kids moving, especially my con- more constipated kiddos. We might not even go down the SIBO, the SIBO rabbit hole, as I sometimes call it. We might just work on, oh, wow, you tend you know, kid that, kiddo that tends to be a little bit more you know, scholarly. They like to read and they like to kind of sit around and don't really like to move. Um, just getting them out and moving their bodies can be exactly what they need to get their bowels really going. Um, I think mindset. We've talked we've talked a lot about that. That mindset of of really shifting. in this maybe is more more applicable to parents than kids. About you know, really moving away from the worry and really moving towards the holding holding that your kid is. Is going to be well, you know that your kid is um, resilient and vital as best you can, so that that you can really hold that for them. Um, I think those all those things are really are really essential and, and important.
0: Yeah, they are. And, and uh, it's made a huge difference to my life and, uh, and other people that I work with. Um, Dr. Megan Taylor, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. And I have learned so much around just kids with SIBO. And I know that this episode uh, will be so informative and helpful for those parents out there that are dealing with uh, a sick kiddo who's got uh, SIBO and they're wanting to learn some more information about it, or perhaps they're wondering if their kid has SIBO and, uh, and this will have given them a lot more info on what they can do and um, and how they can approach it so thank you so much for joining us on the show today
1: you're very welcome I really enjoyed it
0: now if people would like to connect with you or you know, learn more about what you do what's the best place uh, that they can go to to connect with you
1: Yeah, um, probably the easiest way is via my website, um, megantaylornd.com. And um, on there, there's links to setting up. I do Skype consults um, uh, for patients who are out of state or out of country. And then I also see patients um, privately and in person in Portland, Oregon, where where I'm located. So there's kind of links to all the various ways to see me as well as some information um, and good helpful resources on the site as well.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming on the show. That was Dr. Megan Taylor talking all about kids with SIBO. If you would like the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash kids. You will also be able to download a free guide on the causes and risk factors for kids developing SIBO. So that is a really handy guide for those parents out there that would like to know whether their children might be at risk of developing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, I absolutely love hearing your feedback on the podcast, so don't forget to go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It also helps me to create future podcast episodes that I know you really want to hear, so your review is really helpful for me. And if there's anybody that you know that you think could benefit from this episode or any of the other Healthy Gut podcast episodes, please feel free to share it with them. And just a reminder, if you would like to get the show notes or that handy download from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash kids. And as a little special thank you to say a big heartfelt uh, thank you to all my wonderful listeners who have been so supportive of the launch of the Healthy Gut Podcast, I have got a little Christmas present for you. I'm getting in the festive spirit. I have recently launched my Healthy Gut SIBO Christmas e-cookbook. And to say thanks for being such a great listener, I'd like to give you $5 off. So instead of being $14.95, the book will be $9.95. All you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen Christmas hyphen cookbook. And enter the discount code PODCAST, that's all one word and lowercase P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and that will give you $5 off when you order the SIBO Christmas Cookbook. Now, if you'd like to connect with us, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google And we love hearing from you. It's so good when we get to connect with our listeners. So make sure you do reach out and connect. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by Dr. Alana Gorovich who specialises in inflammatory bowel disease and SIBO. And so we have a wonderful interview where we talk all about IBDs, how she herself has experienced inflammatory bowel disease and how she's changed her life and her health by healing her gut. It is not to be missed, especially if you suffer from an IBD. See you next week. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for
1: listening.